I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. And still Merry Christmas. <laughs> Friends, we are in the Christmas tide season. Uh, we wish you a very Merry Christmas. And uh, since we are in Christmas and no longer in Advent, we are starting a new kind of very short brief uh, a series for Epiphany, and which we're going to be talking about the childhood of Jesus and you know where Jesus was, what Jesus did when he was a child. Um, there's not a lot in scripture that talks about Jesus before he started his public ministry, um, but what is there is very interesting. So Steve, where are we going to set our boundaries for this week? Okay, well, there are two primary places in the New Testament that give us stories of young Jesus, whether infant, tiny baby Jesus or uh, preteen Jesus. Um, they're Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. And probably a number of these stories are going to be ones that people have heard before, but maybe we don't realize how they all interconnect or which ones have kind of dotted lines as boundaries between them. Because we've got some stories that only Matthew tells us, some stories that only Luke tells us. And curiously, the other two gospels give us nothing about Jesus' childhood. Mark just starts right off with adult Jesus getting baptized at the beginning of his book. And John starts at the beginning of the Big Bang with, uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. So he reaches a little further back and then still presents us with no child Jesus. Um, So we're going to spend our time today taking a look at the stories that we're given in Matthew's gospel. And next week, we're going to take a look at the stories that Luke gives us and maybe what each of them has to say about who Jesus is even from before his adulthood. So in in Matthew to start, maybe the the first place that's helpful as an entry point is a set of characters that we probably at least have some familiarity with. They're called the Magi or the Wise Men, or depending on your carol tradition, the Three Kings. Um, Let's open up that can of worms in that story. So I think a, a good reminder that I have nearly every year is that the wise men are exclusive to Matthew's gospel, right? Like they don't appear in Luke, um, which I always tend to forget about because I have the nativity. So in my brain of like on one side of a nativity is the shepherds and then on the other side are the magi. And so like, it's hard for me to remember even as a pastor that no, the Magi are from Matthew and the shepherds are from Luke and that they're, they're very different and that they wouldn't have crossed paths, let alone cross paths on the night that Jesus was born. Right. Um, Because so, so the Magi are the wise men. They are hearing like all of these prophecies about the Messiah and they've determined that the Messiah is going to be born and so they travel quite a bit to reach Jesus and we're told that they came later right like that Jesus was a child not a baby right by the time uh, and this is a what Matthew chapter 2 they arrive on the scene after Jesus born having followed a star in the sky and they come to the house where Jesus is um and 
later on when uh, King Herod, who's uh, the sort of the Roman puppet ruler, um, gets upset that there's another um, usurper king, he uh, will get to this story in a little bit, but he ends up um, saying that uh, he's going to kill any of the babies in uh, Bethlehem two years old and younger based on the timing he's heard from the Magi. So that at least suggests that these travelers uh, slash astrologers have been watching the skies for possibly years and that this could mean Jesus is a toddler by now rather than, you know, still laying in the manger. I think it might be worth noting too, as, as you helpfully lifted up, Sarah, that while Luke only gives us angels and shepherds and Matthew only gives us magi, he doesn't, he doesn't have any shepherds or angels for that matter. So there's like two, almost two separate stories. Um, it's not like at no point does Matthew say there's magi, but I'm telling you there weren't any shepherds. And Luke doesn't say, I'm telling you there weren't any magi. It's just, they're telling us different stories and letting them sort of exist on their own. We don't have to pick one gospel or the other for which is the right way it went. This is, these are two different storytellers giving us two different sets of stories, but it is worth remembering the way Matthew tells us about the Magi, it isn't the night that Jesus is laid in a manger. Matthew doesn't know anything about a manger, or at least he doesn't tell us about it. And I find it very interesting that it's Matthew's gospel that tells us about the wise men, because his gospel is written for the Jews. It's written for Jewish people. And, and yet the wise men are not Jews. Right. You know, we've got They're... Gentiles coming to worship this babe. We've got Gentiles in the genealogy of Matthew earlier in chapter one, like, you know, so for a gospel writer to be writing to a Jewish audience to try to prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, for him to include Gentiles always fascinates me. Yeah, I, I guess I think that's a helpful framing, and it, and it maybe tips us off too that part of what's going on in Matthew's world when he's writing his gospel is that early church controversy over. Are, is is this thing that God is doing in Jesus only for Jewish people, or is it for everybody? And Matthew, from beginning to end, has landed on the side of this is for everybody. Um, from the opening genealogy, as you say, which highlights women who were outsiders, often foreigners, often of low social status or with curious circumstances, and ending with the Great Commission, go into all nations, that is the Gentile world, and bring the good news to everybody, and baptizing them to be included. It almost seems like Matthew even though it's clear he's writing to people who have a deep familiarity with Judaism is trying to make the case from beginning to end this thing that God has done in Jesus really is for everybody and it's not just in the words of Jesus but even in his birth here's evidence of it 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 also sets the tone for a a global political stage yeah that the magi are traveling from the east um, and they are here in this Roman occupied territory, and the Magi almost immediately run into King Herod. Right, and, and it seems. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and that it, it sets a conflict immediately mm-hmm. with power structure and how Jesus has the potential of disrupting that political structure, even as an infant. 
Yeah. And it seems like the, the Magi assume the place to go to meet a new king is the capital. So they go to Jerusalem and they, you know, they're greeted by the official royal dignitaries and their answers. We've come to see the new king who's been born. So we assumed he'd be in the capital. And even there, there's sort of this delightful dig against that's not how God operates. God's always mm-hmm. operating, you know, in the in the shadows and the underside of the people on the margins and not at the centers of power or respectability. Um, so that, yeah, that it, it seems like, again, even from the beginning, not just an inclusion of outsiders like Gentiles, but intentionally God lifting up the people who are deemed unimportant and forgettable is, nope, this is who God works through. Maybe that even helps us to I think helpfully see who the Magi are a little more clearly too. Um, because like I say, our, our popular hymnody has transformed them into Kings. Um, but the, the language that Matthew gives us doesn't say they're Kings. It says, I mean, the, the word he uses Magi and it's where we get our word magician from. It is it literally related the word for magic or magician. Um, and the only other qualification we get is that they are astrologers. They're people who are convinced that, um, that there are signs in the stars and in the sky that give indications about events on earth. Sometimes that word magi or magus is the singular was a word used for like a kind of like spiritual astrological advisor to Kings in like ancient Persia or places like that. So they might well have had like an, an official status as um, like a Royal advisor, but it doesn't, you don't get the sense that they themselves are Kings of any land, but they, they're, like court magicians almost, like in a fairy tale almost. Oh, um, so I used to study history in college. And the thing that really fascinated me is that the the continual thread throughout history of people who know something that the rest of the population doesn't know Uh have often been confused with magicians, Mm -hmm. with magic users. Um, And that this was... Even something as simple as if somebody in your town knew how to write Mm. and they were the only person who knew how to write and read, um, they would be considered to be a magic user because they could make lines on a piece of paper and then be able to recall information that other people wouldn't be able to recall quite so readily or word for word exact. Yeah. Um, And that this was just like that you know it's the same plot as uh the movie thor uh, <laughs> right you know thor and the asgardians oh they're magic users no 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 their science is just higher <laughs> right and more complicated than earth magic or not earth science because right. they lived longer and et cetera et cetera et cetera but yeah that magic was often confused with knowledge sure and I guess I think it's it seems at least curious that um, it seems if you were going to be strict about Torah obedience, there are some pretty strong rules in the Torah against consulting the, the stars or constellations mm-hmm. or planets for signs of meaning. In fact, you were supposed to be put to death for doing it. And yet here are people whose only introduction to the Messiah is they were reading the horoscopes in their local newspaper. They were consulting the stars. Um, and, you know, like a lot of ancient religions from Zoroastrianism to others would have done. Um, and they're led to meet the Messiah and they aren't turned away because they're pagan. I think like there's something again, Matthew's doing intentionally to say all these people that the rules say should not be includable. Yep. They're includable. Um, and, I, I don't even know if Matthew's quite worked out just how like 
world shattering that is, but at least he kind of is aware of the trajectory of what God's up to includes non-Jewish people. It includes people with the wrong previous religion and all those things. And this is for them as well. But also that tells us quite a bit about Herod, right? Yeah. That Herod is willing to listen to these astrologers right? and is going to take this threat of an infant Messiah king person very seriously, which isn't shocking what we know from Herod from history. Her- this Herod has killed uh, at least one wife, at least one son, because he suspected a coup. So the fact that he's willing to kill babies yeah. isn't shocking. And the fact that he's willing to listen to astrologers, uh, not shocking. Yeah. And that sort of ushers in the, like, the, the dark shadow side of the visit of the Magi, that while everybody's nativity scene might have the happy moment of, oh, here come these strangers bearing gifts. Isn't that delightful? Um then the, the, the downside of that is the Magi are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod and tell him that they found them, uh, the baby that they were looking for. And when Herod realizes that the Magi are not coming back, um, he launches an all-out campaign to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem, two years old and, un- and under, as an attempt to protect his own power and to preserve his own reign so that no would-be mm-hmm. usurpers take over or, or usurp his throne. It's a good thing that people in this story listen to their dreams, (laughs) right? Because uh, the Magi are warned in a dream to not return to Herod, and so they don't. Mm -hmm. Joseph is warned in a dream to take the child and his mother and to flee, and he does, and therefore Jesus is spared in the slaughter. But I also can just, like... I know I don't take my dreams this seriously. Yeah, yeah. And even uh, at the beginning of the the, uh, pregnancy in Matthew's retelling, Joseph is the one who's visited an angel uh, by an angel when he finds out that Mary's pregnant. And the angel says, hey, it's okay. Keep your plans. Marry her. It's fine. Um, So, yeah, at multiple points, people have to not only have dreams and remember them, but trust them. And like you say, it, it, it's strange that in a culture like ours, it treats dreams a lot more like this is just your brain like defragmenting, you know, um, uh, or like a software update for your brain at night while your phone is recharging. Um, and we end up treating the, the, the Bible treats dreams much more seriously, or at least sometimes does with certain people who seem to have that knack or that God given gift. You think of like Joseph and the uh, story in Genesis, you know, that, that different Joseph who's got the brothers and, and interprets dreams or Daniel in the Hebrew Bible as well. But yeah, there's repeated times where people do listen to what their dreams tell them. That spurs on once, once Joseph gets that dream to relocate with uh, Mary and with the child Jesus in like another echo of like the Old Testament Exodus narrative. Like even mm-hmm. even Pharaoh's move to kill the the uh, boy children of Bethlehem has echoes of Pharaoh in in Egypt. You know, wanting to kill all the Hebrew boys uh, from overwhelming and overpowering the the Egyptian system. But then that leads Joseph to take Jesus and Mary to Egypt, right? And that move, like, is is on the one hand just a matter of their physical safety. They need to get somewhere out of 
Herod's jurisdiction. So if they leave, I mean, like, technically, this is all under the bounds of the letterhead of the Roman Empire, but under a different local prince or puppet king, they'd be out of Herod's jurisdiction and wouldn't be uh, hunted down necessarily. But Matthew also plays this up and sees this as he talks about this as a fulfillment of prophecy and says, you know, as as the prophet said, out of Egypt, I have called my son, um, which is a little bit weird because that that line that he quotes is from the, the book of the prophet Hosea, where it's originally a reference to the whole nation of Israel. And it's, it's a call back to the Exodus story about how God had, mm-hmm. you know, had brought the people Israel out of slavery and into the new land and all that. And that Israel, the collective group of people, the nation is sort of treated as God's child or God's son. Um, so it wasn't necessarily a prediction of the Messiah. It was a, this is the story of how Israel's history went. They were called out of Egypt, uh, you know, from slavery. And I guess that's helpful, too, as a reframing of who Jesus is, that we can treat this kind of like, oh, here's another prediction. The Messiah would come out of Egypt. That's not really what's going on. It's more like Jesus is the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be. And so as Israel, you know, was brought out of Egypt into the promised land, Jesus also comes out of Egypt. Um, but that there's that. Uh, it, it's more that Jesus is meant to be what Israel was always intended to be, um, not just like a Nostradamus type type prediction of the Messiah will have a weird stint in Egypt. I've like, I know that this wasn't Matthew's biggest concern, but I've always wondered at the age of Jesus during these two trips, you know, mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. and then returning from Egypt. Cause he's clearly young enough that, you know, Joseph is in charge. Joseph is the one who is deciding based off of a dream that he's going to take his very young family and go down to Egypt and be a refugee. Mm-hmm. Joseph is the one that gets a dream to say, come back. And Joseph is the one who then, as he's deciding where to settle into Israel, gets more dreams clarifying, yes, you should settle here and not there because over there, there's um, somebody else who might be a threat to Jesus's life. So it's very much Joseph is the head of the family and making these decisions. Um, But we don't get to hear from Mary as to what she's thinking or experiencing. We don't get to hear the experiences from Jesus and any younger siblings that he may or may not have at this point about what it was like living in Egypt as small kids, as refugees, what it was like going home to a home that you don't remember, but a culture that's very much yours and what it was like to return to that culture and no longer be the refugee, but rather be the one who knows what it's like to live in Egypt. Yeah. Um, So we just don't know his age or the experiences that they had. And I wish Matthew had said more. Yeah. I yeah. suppose that's what fan fiction and midrash. <laughs> yeah, although I think you raise a good point that at least you could reasonably extract from this if if we're anywhere on target that Jesus is like a two year old toddler ish, you know, based on when going into Egypt when when the the Magi appear, um, and so toddler Jesus goes to Egypt. Um, however, um, whatever amount of time. Uh, is spent in Egypt, those are going to be formative memories. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. I I don't know many people who remember specific concrete events before they were two years old, but you start having some pretty important basic memories that you hold on to for your life, um, you know, in in those early years of toddlerhood. Um, And like you say, that's definitely going to shape 
how how Jesus grows up and becomes an adult human as well that he knows what it's like to be an outsider as Jewish person in Egypt and then coming back to uh to Palestine and settling in Nazareth as someone who's lived in Egypt for a while like that's certainly going to have a, a feel of knowing what it's like to be an outsider and a refugee and dependent on somebody else providing welcome um and even the way Matthew tells it it's it's kind of weird you almost get the feel that um Joseph decides when they're leaving from Egypt to settle in Nazareth, not that that had been his home base before, like they were going to go back to Bethlehem, but nope, the angel tells him go to Nazareth instead, um, because that's out of uh, the, the the territory that, that was in Herod's family dynasty. Um, as opposed to, as we'll talk next time, the way Luke tells it, Nazareth is home base. They leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem and then go back to Nazareth because that was home base. But this is, a, it's just a different feel the way Matthew tells it. And and I think that that's going to be two very radical childhoods about whether or not Nazareth is home base or it is Yeah. like, because if it is home base, then they're going to have a family support system. They're going to have aunts and uncles and cousins and maybe some grandparents still around. And that's going to provide a very different childhood structure in the first century than if you were a standalone small nuclear family without that wider family support system. Right, right, right. Um, it also might give a little bit of a window into the way Jesus kind of has a standoffish relationship with that town of Nazareth when he's an adult. And you know, all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us stories about Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And this should be, you know, comfortable, familiar territory. They should all be cheering him on as the hometown boy done good. And in every one of those stories it's uh they want to throw rocks at him by the end (laughs) by the end of the scene um and jesus sometimes has some unpleasant things to say about his own hometown that that might color some of that you know if if yeah it's where he lived but it was never really felt like home it might be helpful too um to know i uh, archaeologists have have suggested that um while there's not a whole lot of business going on in the village that was Nazareth in the first century, it's pretty close to a large Roman city in process called Sephoris, where there would have been a lot of work for laborers and that you might well have had people living in Nazareth and doing work, whether stonemason work building or carpentry or you know, whatever kind of thing, um, that it's plausible to imagine that uh, you would have lived in one of the outside small villages like Nazareth and gone and found work in Sephoris um, the same way lots of people today. You know, they work in the big city and they go back to their smaller town or whatever at, at night. Um, so, again, it's, it's maybe less Joseph working in the carpentry shop like we sometimes romanticize and more like Joseph as day laborer going to the bigger city to find day work on a construction crew. Um, and again, that, I, I think there's something... Um, I don't know, very, very real and gritty about that kind of a picture, that it's it's not necessarily that Jesus is learning how to make um, handmade furniture like an antique, you know, set of dresser drawers or something, but more like he's doing work that the Romans are hiring you to do. And it's it's just, it's it's hard work, sweaty labor kind of labor rather than I made a set of candlesticks today. I'm not, I'm not sure that Jesus was doing artisanal things, more like stonemason work. You mean Jesus wasn't? building a modern table and joking about it with his mother. Right. Right. I mean, like, and (laughs) again, I I get that we can't help, uh, you know, but, but cast the, the stories in, in details that we picture, but like, 
and, and again, it's, it's tough because our, our, our English translations say something like Joseph was a, and we translate it carpenter. The Greek is tekton, which is a word for builder and is more likely used for like contractor work, like a construction crew and less like, you know, the, the guy at Yield Yankee Workshop, you know, like mm-hmm. this is less like Norm Abrams on the TV show building something in the workshop and more like guy going to the work site who's a day laborer. And that, that j- it changes the picture some. Well, I think it's Luke's gospel that says Jesus was born in an inn. There's, you know, there's no room for them in the inn. Um, and we can get to yeah, like that, that's, a, that's a piece for us to unpack. Too. And I think in previous episodes, we may have lamented that pet mm-hmm. peeve too, that one bad English translation, we get centuries of there is an inn and an, a stingy innkeeper when that's, that's not what, what Luke is saying at all either. Um, and again, because these stories are near and dear to us, it's really easy for us to get protective and defensive about the details that we imagine. So like you said at the beginning, Sarah, because my nativity set has shepherds on one side and magi on the other to balance them out for the, the visual symmetry of it. I imagine they were all there on that night and it was just a very, very busy day. And mm-hmm. after the shepherds and then the magi, and then at some point, the little drummer boy, um, when nope, that's not the way the stories are being told. And to take a closer, honest look maybe forces us to see things with a little bit less romanticism and maybe a little more, what are the gospel writers trying to tell us about Jesus? And it sounds like certainly it's about Jesus knows what it's like to be an outsider from the beginning, from his earliest memories. Um, Are there other things about Matthew's telling that would be helpful about these infancy child stories of Jesus that, that would be helpful for us to hold in the back of our mind before next week, we talk about Luke's stories. I I think that, I think it's worth noting that in Matthew's gospel, the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist isn't talked about. Mm -hmm. That, you know, in Luke's gospel, we are told that Elizabeth and Mary are in some way related to one another. They're a kinswoman. Mm-hmm. And so that Jesus and baby John the Baptist would have been not necessarily cousins, but maybe cousins, like yeah. there's some sort of family relationship between the two. And so therefore we can assume in Luke's gospel that they have probably met before Jesus's baptism. And that even in the womb, they seem to recognize each other, right. who they are. Um, whereas we don't get that in Matthew, we just jump immediately to, uh, that John Mm. the Baptist is in the wilderness proclaiming repent, repent, repent. And as an adult, like we are introduced to John the Baptist as an, as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. And that's going to change the tone. And when next time we talk about the, what it's like to be child Jesus, knowing that Somewhere in the temple is your relative Zechariah, who, you know, we're told by Luke is a, is a, a priest, you know, and would have, you know, that would have been a place Jesus had grown up going to all the time. Whereas, yeah, Matthew's telling, we don't get any, any awareness of whether Jesus does or doesn't ever go to the, the temple uh, the way, you know, some families might've done every year. Yep. That, that's a detail that's in Luke and yeah. Luke only, like the other gospels. It's not a, it's not an important detail. Like that's not to say that that detail didn't exist in the wider world but rather that the gospel writers didn't think that it was important in the story that they were telling. Yeah. 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 I, I, I don't, I don't want to, to make this sound like we're dealing with 
fiction here and we're talking about the gospels that people are making things up out of whole cloth but um when i think about the differences between um uh the gospel writers who are telling similar or overlapping kind of stories there's a part of me that that finds it helpful to think in terms of comic book characters and comic book movies. Um, and like, so we're living through a current spate of Spider-Man movies again. Um, and now by the time uh, this episode airs, yet another Spider-Man movie will be out there. Um, and Spider-Man is one of those series uh, like, I guess like Batman too, that's been rebooted so many times that um, every time they are going to relaunch, there's a question of how much of the origin story are we going to tell? And each version of the origin story has different details and focuses on, on, okay, he starts out as a high schooler. Nope, this one's going to start with, you know, Peter Parker's parents and the secret projects they're involved in. Um, and they're all t- t- telling broadly the same story about kid bitten by a radioactive spider. Um, but they each, let, you know, sort of need to stand on their own. Um, and I guess I think the go- it's worth recognizing the Gospels do something similar to that. They are all telling us the story of Jesus, but it's worth letting each of them bring their own voice instead of trying to flatten them into what's exactly the chronology. How long were they in Egypt before this other story from the other Gospel happens? Let them each tell their own story their own way because they're trying to uplift something about who Jesus is. Yep. And maybe that's a good guide to springboard us into our next episode, too, that the gospel writers aren't terribly interested in giving us an exact chronology necessarily of how long or exactly when each thing happens necessarily, as they're trying to tell us who Jesus is. Um, Sarah, you and I both had a professor in seminary who used to talk about that the gospel writers are trying to evangelize us, um, and that they are, their their job is less to give us the definitive uh, history book of this and then this and then this, but more, they want us to come to believe in Jesus, and that's their, their purpose of their storytelling is different than you know a a chronology and we keep that in mind that allows us to hear Matthew's stories today and next time to look at at Luke's and not have to pick one or the other so with that in mind then um join us next time we're going to take a look at other childhood infancy stories of Jesus uh here in this very Christmassy series on crazy faith talk see y'all bye